All right, good morning. How are we doing? Excellent. And my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'm glad you're here. I would love to meet you when this service is over. Uh, we're just this church of people who, uh, I say this periodically to remind us of our lives, but we, we started out thinking we had everything under control, that we, that we had the destiny of our own lives, that it was all in our hands. And then one day we wake up and we realize that not only are we not where we thought we'd be, but we can't control anything. And so we come to places like this and we begin to wonder, could Jesus be the answer? And so we come thinking, if we just learn enough about the Bible, if we just learn enough about Jesus, with our minds, we can decide to be a believer. And what happens is we begin to learn about Jesus. We begin to learn about the word. But as we're learning, something weird happens in our heart. We begin to understand that we don't know everything. We probably never will know everything. We don't understand everything, but we're falling in love with this Savior. And it's a love that doesn't really resonate. We don't understand it because it's not of us. It's, we feel we're deeply loved and we respond to that love. And then our lives start to change. And it's not something that we're purposely doing. We're literally becoming a different person than the one we used to be. And we don't understand it and we can't fully explain it. But what we realize is we're changing on the inside. We're becoming a different people, a person. It's not that we've decided not to do things anymore. We don't want to do those things anymore. It's not that we have cleaned ourselves up. We've come dirty and we're being cleaned and we don't fully understand it. So we come back every week and we try to learn more. And what we learn is the more we surrender, the more we're changed. The more we resist, the less we're changed. And so we come here and we worship. We thank God for changing our lives because none of us would want to go back. And at the same time, we understand that what's happening to us is beyond us. It's literally supernatural. Part of that is opening up the word of God, the scriptures, and agreeing with him about truth. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at a book of Revelation and we're in week 13. We've been going for a while, uh, but we're oddly only in like chapter two, but we're in week 13 and uh, another story. Um, but Jesus starts out the revelation. Remember, we talked about how there's only one revelation. It's not revelations, revelation, period. And the revelation is Jesus Christ himself. But he starts out kind of oddly because you think he's gonna reveal his return and he starts talking about these churches, seven churches. He says, write some letters for me. Take a pen. John, write this down. And he begins to write these letters to seven churches. And last time I spoke, we looked at the church of Ephesus, the one that John had pastored, the one that was doing so well, he thought, and yet Jesus says, you've lost your love. You don't love me like you used to love me. And we looked at that and we said, wow, what a tough thing to hear as the pastor of the church. And so we begin now today to look at the other six letters. Why did Jesus include these letters in a book about revealing himself? What does the letters to the church reveal to us about Jesus? Many want to skip the seven letters and get on to the really fun stuff. But the revelation of Jesus in our world today is through the church. If people today want to understand and see Jesus, they come here. They come to the church to try to understand who he is and what he's done. That should be really scary to you when you think about it. 
We're the ones the world is looking to to represent Jesus. And we don't look anything like him in general in the church today. And that's the message of Revelation. Why are the seven churches revealed in Revelation? Because they have failed their mission. And Jesus and Jesus alone can save the world. And we're going to talk about that. There are really many ways to think about these seven letters. One, as we talked about, there are seven letters to seven very real churches in seven very real places in the first century. They're just letters. Second is they're a letter to the entire church at all times. That the number seven in the Bible represents complete, that every church has these issues. Every church has some of these problems. And it's supported by the fact that Jesus repeatedly says uh, to allow the churches to read each other's letters. So in other words, the letter wasn't just to Ephesus, it was to Ephesus and the six other churches. And today, these letters, all seven of them, are to us as well. And we're going to see today, they're very convicting. They foreshadow, in many ways, the era of church through time. We're going to talk about that. that some people say, well, these seven churches represent the seven stages of the church since Acts. And we'll talk about that. Each of these letters have the same style. There's a commendation. This is what you're doing well. There's a condemnation. This is what you're not doing well. Then there's a charge. This is what I want you to do. And then there's a promise. This is what will happen when you do it. I love that about God. Almost every time he commands you to do something, he puts a blessing on the back end of your obedience. Now we're going to move to the second letter. Now again, these are all cities in the first century. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Smyrna. It's in Turkey today. Izmir, Turkey to be exact. Second largest city in Turkey behind Istanbul. There are no ruins left of the church of Smyrna. Here's what he says to them. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is looking at this church and he's saying, look, I know what's going on. Uh, I'm not lost on this. I know your tribulation. I'm aware. I know. I see what's happening to you. It's not beyond my control. It didn't catch me by surprise. I am allowing it for my purposes, but I know your tribulation. See, sometimes in the midst of difficult times, we just need to remind ourselves that Jesus knows. That in the midst of our tribulation, he's allowing something into our lives for his greater purpose. He says, look, I know you've lost everything. All your material possessions are gone. They've taken them all. To the world you may seem poor, but to me, Jesus says, you're so rich. That's how Jesus thought of them. And if Jesus considered them rich, then they're rich. Our estimation of ourselves is far less important than what God thinks of us. In contrast, the Christians at Laodicea we're going to see, thought they were rich, but they're actually very poor. Laodicea was a poor, rich church. Smyrna was a rich, poor church. We're going to see that. Here's what he says. I know the slander. I know what people are saying about you. 
I know the lies. They're coming from people who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're in a synagogue of Satan. Think about what Jesus is saying here. I know they're lying about you. This comes from Acts 15 when God led the disciples to teach the Gentiles that they're not saved by being Jewish or getting circumcised or observing the Mosaic law. They're saved by their faith in Christ. This decision, the decision that your faith in Christ is what separates you, began the great divorce between Judaism and Christianity. Jews were very tolerable. You could be orthodox, you could be moderate, you could be a cultural Jew if you want. You'd be welcome in the synagogue. What did you have to do to get kicked out of the synagogue? You have to believe what Paul believed. You have to believe what Christ has done and say that the law was unable to do it. Jews couldn't deal with that. They couldn't deal with the idea that God's laws from God's lips to Moses was, had to be obligatory. You had to obey it. it. It was one of the challenges that from a Jewish perspective, you couldn't say that you didn't have to obey all the law. That's why Christians were not allowed in the synagogue. They, they believed that their salvation came through faith, not performance. And early on, Christians were persecuted by the Jews long before they were persecuted by the Romans. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They weren't around to have jobs. They weren't allowed to, to be in public meetings. They often had to hide themselves. There were things that happened to them that were critical. There was no work or food in Jerusalem. Paul had to go around to all the cities of the world and collect money to send it back to the believers in Jerusalem so they could survive. The early church was under persecution. And it really wasn't until the Romans learned that this was actually not Judaism, but a new religion that they began persecuting it. Jesus himself here says that those who are persecuting from a Jewish perspective are deceived and being led by Satan. Jesus himself is saying, no, it's faith in me. It's not performance. It's not your ability to obey the Mosaic law. It's me and me alone. Now, it's interesting, this church, there's no condemnation for this church. Usually there's a commendation, this is what you're doing well, and there's a condemnation, which this is what you're not doing well. This church doesn't have a condemnation. What Jesus says to this church is important, but what he doesn't say is also important. He didn't have a single word of rebuke for these people. Didn't have a single thing to complain about. All he had is the promise of a crown. Encouragement to be faithful until death, which literally means be faithful until death, and you will receive the crown. It wasn't that the church at Smyrna was perfect. They had plenty of weaknesses and issues, I'm sure, just like every church. This was another wealthy trade city on trade routes. But this is the place where worship of the Roman emperor became mandatory. And rebellion was punished by death. A.D. 95, the church is being slaughtered because they're not willing to surrender to the Roman emperor. I think Jesus knew they were going through enough. Condemnation was not something they really needed to deal with at the moment. They just need to survive. They're already giving up their lives. They're not going to have time to repent or change anything because they're being slaughtered. They are all being slaughtered and they knew it was coming and they knew it was going to happen. It's likely why Jesus chose to remind them that they'd already overcome death. 
Now they're alive. They're a martyred church. The association with death and the victory of resurrection is throughout this letter. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, a sweet-smelling perfume used to embalm. The Roman emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty, foreshadowing the Antichrist. We'll see that later in Revelation. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. Worship me or die. Emperor worship had begun a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome, but towards the end of the first century under Domitian, Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense at the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he'd perform that religious duty. All the Christians had to do was take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. They could receive their certificate, they could go away, they could worship Jesus all year long, but they wouldn't do it. They, they would give no man the name of Lord. They would keep it for Jesus and Jesus alone. The persecution of the church continued into the second century and it was led, the church was led by a man named Polycarp. In 155 AD, he was an old frail man, at least physically, but we're gonna see that he was very strong physically. On the way to the city, the police chief and government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense before the statue of Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do and he'd be off the hook. They pleaded with him to escape the dreadful penalties that come. He was silent, but then he finally gave them a very firm answer, no. Take the oath and deny Christ and I'll set you free, the, the uh, pro-council said. He said, for 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I deny him now? Proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd the crime of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. They arranged a great pile of wood. They set up a pole in the middle, and as they tied Polycarp to the pole, he said, I thank you that you have graciously taught, thought me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And after he pay, prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. Jesus looks at this church and he goes, I know what's coming. You're all gonna be slaughtered. Stay faithful to receive the crown. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. According to Jesus, the persecution of the church is from the devil himself. Limited and measured by God to allow only a certain amount of time. Being thrown into prison was severe persecution in those days. It wasn't used to rehabilitate anybody, rarely used to punish anybody. You were thrown into prison while you awaited your execution. For a man to become a Christian was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna and many other places, for someone to walk into a church literally meant he's taking his life in his hands. promise. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
what he's telling them is, look, you're, you're eternal. You're already dead physically. You're alive spiritually. They can't hurt you. Stay faithful to the crown. I think many churches would have emptied out with that forecast. Jesus is straight up. You're going to be martyred. It's okay. It's my will. It's part of my plan. The process of a crown was especially meaningful for the Christians of Smyrna. The city of Smyrna had a crown of beautiful buildings at the top of Mount Pagos. In Smyrna, worshipers of pagan gods wore crowns. In that culture, good citizens and winning athletes received crowns. Jesus promises a special crown, the crown of life. Champion receives a crown of leaves, which would get brown and die. Jesus' champions receive the crown of life. Third letter. To the angel in the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamum, another city on the trade route. When John wrote, Pergamos had been the capital city of the region for more than 300 years. It's a gorgeous city. Sat up on top of a big mountain with a flat top. It too was a wealthy city on trade routes. It's an extremely religious city. It had temples of the Greek and Roman gods, Dionysus, Athenia, Zeus. Temple to Zeus will play a role in this letter in a minute. The city was especially known as the center of worship for a deity represented by a serpent, the god of healing and knowledge. There was a medical school at the temple in Pergamos. Because of that famous temple to the Roman god of healing, sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire flocked to Pergamos for relief. Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple, and in the temple there were tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of God himself, and the touch was to bring healing and health. Also had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperors. The city was a noted center for cultural and education, having one of the greatest libraries of the ancient world with over 200,000 volumes. Jesus reminds us that of all those words in that library, his word is the two-edged sword. You want to find truth? Find it in my word, the two-edged sword, not over in that library full of pagan books. It should be a warning to them about what Jesus is about to say to the church. He reminds us of the passage of Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus is going to use this sharp two-edged sword to separate some of the Christians in Pergamos. Here's his commendation. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In other words, I know you live in a pagan city. I got it. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In other words, I get it. You're in a pagan place. They're trying to kill you and you're standing firm. I love that about you. I know where you live. When we hear, I know where you live, it sounds ominous, doesn't it? Ooh, you know where I live. You live where Satan has a throne. The great temple of Zeus at Pergamum. Yet you remain true to my name. 
You're in a very sophisticated, very pagan city, and you're keeping the faith, he says. You didn't even waver when one of your own leaders was martyred for the faith in this city where Satan dwells, where the temple to Zeus is. But I have a few things against you, he says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you have allowed some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He's referring to an event in Numbers where the Moabite woman seduced the Israelite men and then turned them towards their God and away from the God of Israel. The sexual exploits result in corruption of the Israelites. The teaching of Balaam is accommodation. Allow the culture to define the church, not the other way around. Whatever the culture wants to do, let them bring it into the church. Make the church look like the culture, and then you'll attract people. And then you'll have a thriving church. Don't judge them or fight them. Just get along. Lighten up. It's exactly what the Nicolaitans were saying, and Jesus in his word says, I hate that. You you want me to hate something? Make my church look like your world. Because they're not supposed to look at all the same. Sexual immorality marked the entire culture of the ancient Roman Empire. People who lived in biblical standards of purity were considered strange and odd, just like they are today. The rebuke was not only against those who hold doctrines of Balaam, And those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, it was against those who allow it to continue. Don't miss that. It's not enough that we as a church point to something and say it's wrong. We also have a responsibility to do something about it. Jesus knows that there's a whole movement in this church of accommodation to a culture that is satanic. The city where Satan lives, the temple where Satan is up high on the hill. You're trying to bring that into my church. Therefore, he says, repent. Repent doesn't mean think about it. It doesn't mean debate it. It doesn't mean argue it. It means turn your butt around and quit doing it. Go the other direction. You're running from God. You need to go towards God. Whether you want to or not, you repent because you have to be obedient to what Christ tells you to do. It's not a feeling It's an action based on truth. Repent. If not, I'll come to you and war against them with the word of my mouth. Again, my truth. I will break this place down with my truth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, look, if you don't fix this, I will. And then the promise. To those who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Fourth church, Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This was the smallest and least important city of these seven. Jesus addresses it in Revelation 2 and 3. In history, we have no record of the Christians of Thyatira. We don't know if they suffered any religious or political persecution. The elder Pliny dismissed Thyatira with the almost contemptuous phrase, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. 
Still, it was a city of business and trade, had many active trade guilds, each having their own patron god from the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. Acts 16 mentions Lydia, if you remember, Lydia from Thyatira, who was the seller of purple cloth. He was famous for his manufacturing of purple dye. And numerous references in secular literature point to trade guilds which manufactured cloth in Thyatira. It was believed to be the least politically important of the seven. The city's strength was in its trade. It was really more of a blue-collar town. It's where the tradesmen lived. It's where they worked. As a result, Christians are applauded for their dedication, tenacity, growth in good works in this kind of working-class city. Eyes that see all truth, feet of one who's been tested with fire. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. This church seems to have it going on. I know your works, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service, I know how you've patiently endured, and I know you're growing in those things. Fantastic. What you are doing now is more than you were doing in the beginning. You're changing. You're growing up. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idol. The name Jezebel has a powerful association. If we call somebody a Judas or a Hitler, it means something strong. It was also strong to call somebody Jezebel. I've never met a Jezebel in my life. It's not in the book of babies. She's one of the most evil characters of the Old Testament who attempted to combine the worship of Israel with the worship of the idol Baal. She has an unenviable record of evil. The Jezebel at the church of Thyatira wasn't really a prophetess. She only claimed to be one. But Christians there received her as a prophetess. They didn't test. That's why Jesus gave them this warning. He already had said this would happen in Matthew 24. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Those are the words first spoken to view the end times, but they're always going to be false prophets in their church. There's always going to be liars in the church. You're always going to be on guard to try to protect the truth in the church. It's part of living in a fallen world where people want to bring the outside world into the church. Later in this letter, Jesus would also reveal a link to the work of Jezebel, this doctrine, the depths of Satan, as they say. It seems that Jezebel was leading others to follow the depths of Satan. On the outside, this church is a model church. I see your works, I see your love, I see your service. But there's significant corruption inside the church. The sin of the church was that they allowed the corruption. That's what he's calling out. Before Jesus told the Christians at Thyatira what they must do, he told them what he would do. He would chastise Jezebel. He would cast her into a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her. The reference to adultery here is really important. It speaks both of sexual adultery and spiritual adultery, worshiping other gods. When the Christians honored other gods, they were unfaithful to the Lord who saved them. For this reason, the figure of a sickbed is fitting. They're guilty of adultery, both sexually and spiritually. It started in the bed, it will end in the bed. 
Jesus essentially said, you love an unclean bed. Here's one for you. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast until I have come. And the promise, the one who conquers and who keeps my words to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as an earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is going church by church, praising, condemning, correcting, promising. The fifth letter to the angel of Sardis, write the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Sardis, another city on the map. West Central Asia Minor, the capital of Lydia and a wealthy commercial trading center. Pagan city, Sardis was home to the well-known temple of Artemis, which still exists today in ruins. Church at Sardis is, like all the churches, surrounded by paganism and idolatry, but it was failing to stand out in the darkness. It lays on a principal highway between Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and the high inner areas of Asia Minor, the Aegean coast. It was a legend for wealth and prosperity. It was the place where the rich lived. It was famed for its affluence. In fact, there was a river next to it, the Pactolus River, where gold was often found. This is a city of gold. This is a city of money. This is a city of affluence. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Jesus tell him, look, I don't miss anything. I, I see the work you're doing. I know what you're doing. And more importantly, I know the real reason you're doing it. I know what motivates you. I created you. I know what your reputation is. You have a reputation of being a thriving, active, got it going on church. People looking in at your church think you're alive and well. You're prosperous. You've got a lot of stuff. Big church. A lot of chairs. But you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're on life support. You're acting like you're on the highest mountain. You're actually getting ready to be in the lowest depth. You're doing all these things, but you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, Jesus says. What kind of reasons? Well, I bet affluence has a lot to do with it. Many of us are challenged by following God and money. We can't do it. Jesus said so. This is a church most likely that lives in a community where affluence has taken over the truth of the gospel. They're not doing it for Christ anymore. They're doing it for themselves. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Notice Jesus, I'm coming against you. If you're going to worship a false idol, I'm taking the idol. 
If you can't stop, I'll stop it for you. You're about to be both physically and spiritually poor. Straighten up or I'll remove your church, he says. But there he goes again. Yet, I always call this the remnant clause. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The sixth letter. To the angel at the church of Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Philadelphia, another city on the map. Greek word for friendship among brothers. Thus the city of brotherly love. This church was founded by the Apostle John. This is another one of his churches. The Apostle John, the disciple of love, puts a church in the city of love. This church had problems with Judaism. You see, people in the first century had this uneasy relationship with their Jewish friends and family. Most Jewish Christians still tried to attend the synagogue. They took part in ritual worship. They read the Hebrew scriptures as their Bible. And then on the first day of the week, on Sunday, they met with those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. You see, to a first century Christian, I'm Jewish, I just found the Messiah. To a first century Jewish person, no, you're a false teacher. You didn't find the Messiah. You deny Judaism. So they live in this time, they feel like they're the rightful heir of Judaism, the new Israel, based on Galatians 6. They'd accepted Jesus as Lord. The, the, Christ had spoken of the Hebrew scriptures. The church saw itself as comprised of spiritual Jews who had received circumcision through the Holy Spirit. They were Jews who'd found the Messiah and been circumcised spiritually. It naturally caused a division between the two in the church. The synagogue became a place of fighting. It means that Jewish Christians often endured exceptional pressure and stress about their faith. They were called apostates by their own relatives. Non-Christian Jews accused Christians of being usurpers. They insisted that Jews and not Christians had the open door to God's presence and the keys to the kingdom. The Christians in the Asian city of Philadelphia took the brunt of these claims. Then in about AD 96, John tells us here in the book of Revelation that they were indeed heirs to the salvation. He who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The immediate phrase, keys of David, comes from a, a passage in Isaiah. The Jews in Philadelphia were claiming to be the true people of God who held the keys to the kingdom of God. John contradicts that claim by saying the key to the kingdom, which belonged to Israel, really belongs to Jesus as David's descendant. It had been forfeited by Jewish people because they rejected the Messiah. He says the local Jewish community of Philadelphia may claim that the kingdom belongs to the Jewish community, but they're liars, he says. He's got the key. The new Christians have the key. 
He holds the key to the presence and has opened the door to his kingdom and the church's salvation, and he and he alone opens it. Then he says, look, I know your works. I've set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I'm opening a door of opportunity, Jesus says. You can step through it if you choose to do it. I know you can't do it through your power, but through my name you can. And false Jews are eventually going to discover that Jesus loves them too. You see, Revelation here, Jesus confirms the notion that Jews are no longer the people of God as a nation or as an ethnic entity. They rejected the Messiah. The new Israel, the new church, part of the new covenant, has taken their place. It will include Gentiles who are grafted in and those Jewish people who see Jesus as Messiah. Revelation 3.9 looks to the time when the Jews will finally acknowledge this, finally realize that Jesus is Lord and surrender. All Israel, the Israelite people as a whole, will be saved. Jesus is telling them, look, a great opportunity awaits you. You can accomplish great things through his power, through overcoming the enemies. You just need to persevere and keep working. No condemnation for this church, just to come just a charge. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one can seize your crown. And then we get to the seventh and final letter. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea, once again on our map, another very wealthy trade city with trade routes. But it's next to two mountains. There's something very unique about Laodicea that makes it very interesting. And they play a role in this letter. It's quite inland. When you look across the valley from Laodicea, you see Kamukale and Hierapolis. Kamukale has hot springs that bubble up from the mountains. They have a very high calcium deposit. So it looks like the mountain is covered with snow. But when you walk there, those calcium fields have pools of warm water that are over 90 degrees. Hot and cold. They knew hot and cold. In fact, they had these, uh, what do you call them? They flow water down into town. This is the only town that had flowing hot water. What do they call those things? That's it, aqueducts. And in fact, there's one. Um, And the water would flow from the springs down into the city. They actually had hot water. It's amazing when you go back and look at these letters and you look at what Jesus said, there were things very specific to that city that they would understand. To the city where they find gold, he talks about money. To the city where they find faith that is supposed to be hot but cold, something that looks cold but hot, they understood this. 
No commendation here, but there is condemnation. I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, look, there's no room here to be on the fence. You're either on fire for me or you're not. Neither hot or cold. Think about that mountain. It looks cold, but it's hot. If you were hot on the Holy Spirit, I could do something with that, Jesus says. If you were cold and had strong emotions against me, I could do something about that too. I could work with that, but you're neither. You're like lukewarm. You don't care either way. And because of that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You don't care, Jesus says, and it makes me want to vomit. King James says, spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Self-deception. Your church thinks you're rich, you have the incredible building, the incredible television ministry, the resources are pouring in, you have everything, you have it in abundance. Your church thinks you have it going on, you think you don't need anything, you're smug and self-reliant, and Jesus says, it makes me want to vomit. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, but I'm Jesus. And I say, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich and white garments so that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Jesus says, look, you've fallen for the imposter. You need to come back to me and I'll give you what you really need. I don't hate you. Your actions, though, make me want to vomit. But I haven't given up on you. I discipline those I love so that you will repent. Then he says something very interesting that has been taken out of context so many times, it's ridiculous. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not Jesus knocking on your heart for salvation. Stop it. This is Jesus literally getting to the door of his church, knocking, and they won't let him in. Because they don't recognize who he is. Think about that. Jesus knocking on the door out there, and we don't even know who he is. I'm Jesus. I come to the church that has everything you could want as a church, but they've locked me out. They don't need me. They don't even recognize me, and they don't even recognize that I'm trying to get in. I'm outside at the door. Can't you hear me knocking? Look how desperately he wants in. I'm not going to barge into the church that doesn't want me. But he says, I'm knocking. If anyone, just one person, anybody, one, just one, comes and opens the door. Doesn't have to be the pastor, doesn't have to be an elder, doesn't have to be anybody, a kid, open the door. I'll come in. The truth is, none of you really want me here. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, that I'll be 
that I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven churches to seven, I mean, seven letters to seven churches. At one level we talked about, you read these and you go, okay, these seven churches got letters. But at a secondary level, our church, any church, can fit into one or more of these seven categories. This is a message not only to the original seven churches, but to the entire church now. So have you figured out which category remnant fits into? Every church seems to have some things they're doing well and things they need to improve. Ephesus, the church that abandoned its first love. Maybe Smyrna, the church that would face severe persecution. Pergamum, church that needed to repent of sin. Thyatira, a church whose prophetess was leading people astray. Sardis, a sleeping church that needs to wake up. Philadelphia, the church that has patiently persevered. Laodicea, the church that has lukewarm faith. On a third layer, many people believe that each of these churches represents an era of the church in history. The church at Ephesus, the loveless church, the one that walked away from their first love, is very much like the church in Acts. Growing by leaps and bounds, doing extraordinary things, but choosing to abandon their first love. Working hard, faithful, in relationship with Jesus, but the fire burns out. Look at how they started out. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They studied the word. They were in community with one another. They shared communion. They prayed. The Lord is fully present in the word of God. He's the word in the flesh. He's present when they're gathered together. He's present in their communion. He's present in their prayer. This was the early church devoted to doing things with Jesus. So this era of the church takes us from about 32 AD until persecution of Nero in 64 AD. Church at Smyrna. That's the persecuted church, the martyred church that represents what was happening to Christians, perhaps, from A.D. 64 until 315 A.D., being fed to the Romans, persecuted, slaughtered, killed for their faith. All the major martyrs occurred during that time. 315, the Roman emperor accepts Christianity and the martyrdom stops. But that era was an era much like the church at Smyrna, a time of Christian martyrdom. Then we get to the church at Pergamum, the political church. From 315, when Constantine made Christianity the accepted religion of the Roman Empire, to about 590 AD. Now the church is official. It's climbed in bed with the state. It's during this, this time that the church in Rome joins the state of Rome with the Pope. No longer separation of church and state. Church grows widely during this period. The disadvantage is the church becomes corrupt. Throughout the Bible, we see the Israelites aligning with corrupt kings, and then God has to send a prophet to correct them. Same thing happened here during this era. Church aligned with the state of Rome and accommodated itself to Roman culture. Church at Thyatira is believed to represent the Middle Ages, 590 to 1517. Fully established, moving along just fine. 
but some leaders of the church are taking it in the wrong direction. The church at Sardis is thought to be the church of the Reformation, 517 to 1800. The corruption of the church was evident. That broke out the Protestant movement. In response to that, the church, both Protestant and Catholic, moves into a time of repentance and reform. Church at Philadelphia, we might see as the revived church from 1800 to 1940. Revival to the church. It's during this time that we see the great evangelists of church history. The church is reviving, it's blowing and going. And I said all that to tell you this. The church at Laodicea, 1940 to present. Church that has everything it could need. Every advantage, every resource, plenty of money, huge buildings, internet connections, online spaces, Facebook spaces, social media. The word could be spread in so many ways. But we've locked Christ out of the church. Jesus warned that he would take away the lampstand of the churches that don't repent. Europe is now a post-Christian society. Have you visited the empty churches in Europe? They're not sites of worship, they're tourist sites. Vacant mausoleums to churches that lock Jesus out. Most churches today would not recognize Jesus if he walked in. If he knocked on the door, that's kind of his point. No matter how you choose to engage these letters, whether they're to individual churches, the church as a whole, or eras of history, we have to evaluate where we fit in. And one thing is clear. These seven letters are a warning to us from Jesus himself. He showed us what was, he showed us what is, and when we resume, he's gonna show us what will be. So the modern church. Often wonder what the letter to Remnant would look like. What would he commend, what would he condemn, what would he tell us to repent of? What warning would he give us? Even though John wrote these warnings nearly 2,000 years ago, they still apply to Christian churches today. Christ remains head of the worldwide church, lovingly overseeing as he stands amidst the lampstands tending to them. Many modern churches have wandered from biblical truth such as those that teach the prosperity gospel or don't believe in the Trinity. Two of the most heretical and dangerous lies taught in churches today. Others have grown lukewarm, their members just going through the motions with no passion for God. Many churches in Asia and the Middle East face persecution. Increasingly popular are progressive churches that base their theology more on current culture than solid doctrine found in the Bible. The huge number of denominations, thousands of churches, have founded on little more than the stubbornness of their leaders. While these revelation letters are not as strongly prophetic as other parts of the book, they warn today's drifting church that discipline will come to those who don't repent. I think in many ways, Remnant would receive all seven letters, just like the original churches did. We're guilty of all seven. Some not as obvious as other churches today, but just the same. Several patterns warning jump out at us among the churches of America. Avoiding sexual immorality. Trying to conform to or mimic the culture in which we're placed. 
Covenants with non-believers. Being seduced physically or spiritually by things that are not of God. Avoiding the world's materialism, redefining sin, redefining truth, even redefining God by denying the existence of the Trinity. Creating activities or programs that lock Jesus out of his own church, his own activities. Putting Jesus into a role in which he was not given and in doing so denying the Father and the Holy Spirit. All heresies, all core beliefs in fallen churches. The churches today are allowing sin and even at times encouraging it in the name of unity and wokeness. When you're honest with yourself, every church today has all these seven issues or is at least threatened by them. Churches fail to represent Christ to the world. Do you know how hard that is to realize? That the church has failed to represent Jesus to the world. In many ways, that's the summary of the revelation of the seven churches. We have failed or are unable to bring about God's will on earth. That's the point. That's what had to be revealed. Despite your efforts, despite your best efforts, despite your best efforts as leaders, despite your best efforts as a church, despite your best efforts to walk with Christ, to repent, to do all the things you're supposed to do, you are still a fallen people and you can't save the world. That's what's revealed. Jesus is using the seven churches to make the case for the coming judgment. This is the reason, one of the reasons I have to come down. You can't fix it. You were never meant to fix it. Only the Savior can save the world. Stop saying you can and allow me to do what I do. That's what Jesus says. The church man cannot and will not save the world. Only God will and behold, he says, I'm coming soon. But I can't let you leave here today without talking about you as an individual. Just as the Old Testament trials of the nation of Israel are a metaphor for our relationship with God, the warnings of the book of Revelation speak to every Christ follower today. You see, the Nicolaitans are gone, but millions of Christians are being tempted by modernizing and updating the church and his message. False prophetess of Thyatira has been replaced by TV preachers who talk, failure to talk about sin or need to repent or Christ's death for our sins. Daddy just wants you to be happy. Be happy. Countless believers have turned from their love for Jesus into idolizing material possessions. Many believers are chasing and worshiping money above all else. Many believers have brought in heresy, including the denial of the Trinity, the acceptance of sexual perversions, and the denial of the very truth of God's scriptures. Believers are lying about church leadership, gossiping about other believers, and planning, blaming everyone but themselves for their sins. Instead of repenting, they lash out at those who are calling them to repent. The individual must look at these seven letters and realize they're a mirror. The letter today would be a scathing rebuke to the churches, but perhaps even more to the individuals of those churches. You see, you can't forget the letters were written to the churches, the people of the churches, not the pastor, not the leader. This is a letter to seven churches, groups of people, the entire church today. Reading the short letters to the seven churches of Revelation serves as a stern reminder. 
in a society flooded with temptation, we have to come back to the first commandment. So love the Lord thy God. He has to be first in everything. Seven letters to seven churches to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, these letters are difficult. They're difficult because even though we have excelled in so many ways, even though we have tried and devoted our lives to the mission, it's a mission that we only move forward until your return. We can't set the world straight. We can hold ourselves straight. We can't set the world straight, God, but we can hold our church straight. We can make sure that in every category we are observing your word, following your word, and as a remnant, holding on to your word no matter what happens. God, John never expected these kind of letters to his churches. I don't know what you'd say about this one, God, but I'm not foolish enough to believe that we got it all figured out. So God, the church is the collective faith of the people, the collective obedience of the people, the collective surrender of the people. As a body of Christ, when any of us are caught in sin or an unrepentant sin, we damage the whole. So God, help us as a church to evaluate ourselves, but it starts with us. God, we love you. We can't wait for your return, but we've got work to do. Thank you for showing us who we are. Thank you for not giving up on us despite who we are. Help us, God, to repent and turn and chase you with everything we have until you are here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.